Um, Alex, where he is, that worship set, oh, he's teaching children's church. That worship set goes perfectly with the sermon. And I didn't even tell him what I was preaching on. I didn't even know what I was going to be preaching on. Um, I didn't until um, the Friday. No, and my son was freaking out on Thursday. But uh, if you will, go, go to Psalm 8, please. I got feedback. We're good. Psalm 8. Let me get my glasses on since second law of thermodynamics is affecting me. Let's read. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes You have established strength because of Your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have ordained, what is man that You take thought of him and the son of man that You care for him? Yet You have made him a little lower than God and You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of Your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And Lord, show us just how majestic Your name is in all the earth this morning. May uh, the Spirit of the living God come now and minister the Word of God to us. Life and hope and joy. Renewed strength. And we pray this, Lord God, for Your name's sake and our joy in You. Amen. I've titled this sermon, God's Majesty, The Basis for Humanity's Significance. And the fact of the matter is, we all struggle with anxiety in our lives. I'm coming to you right now from a point of vulnerability and um, weakness as I present to you what I have from the Word this morning. Um, we deal in all of our lives, whether you're an adult or a child, um, a teenager, um, we all deal with anxiety. We all deal with it in one way or another. Uh, maybe it's with finances. Most of us don't have too much money. Most of us lack what we think we need. And it causes a tremendous amount of um, anxiety, uh, of fear for what's up ahead. Um, others of us, our health. Uh, our health uh, fails us. Uh, my back is finally feeling good after about almost two months. And i got to be honest with you, the fear that I was feeling of, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to provide for my family is very, very real and um, kept me up at nights. Um, the, the, the anxiety caused by friendships, when they're fractured, they're not going well. You lose a friendship. You, you have this angst that, you, 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 that is very real um, to you, to me. Uh, how about this one? Looks. You know, looks. I mean, we are so into our looks, some of us more than others. We compare ourselves among ourselves, and we never seem to quite measure up. Um, you know, whether we're single, we're not happy. You know, the single person wants to be married, the married person wants to be single. It's just crazy. 
It's, it's like we're never satisfied. Um, children, my gosh, children can be a blessing. It can be a tremendous uh, burden. It's true. And it's not that in and of themselves they're a burden. But being a parent, you see your lack. And you go, my gosh, I am ruining these kids. Am I doing enough for them? Have I done too much? Have I spoiled them? Uh, how about celebrations? Some of us love parties. Others of us abhor them. Not because celebrations and parties are bad, but just because of our personalities, we'd rather go off in a cocoon and be left alone. How about a promotion? You're looking for a promotion at work and you're anxious over it. Or somebody else gets it that really shouldn't have. Everybody knows it. You know it. But for whatever reason, the person that writes the check and signs it says, no, that person's going to get promoted and you're not. You know? We do have a tendency to anxiety. We have a tendency to compare ourselves among ourselves. And uh, it really affects the way we view our importance as human beings, our significance um, as creatures. And we're either, you know, people are either stronger than us, they are smarter than us, they are prettier, more handsome than us. You can just go on and on and on in the comparisons. And that is nothing new to us. But unfortunately, we're absorbed by it in, in, in our day. And um, it is something that we have to fight as believers. Um, now this psalm, Psalm 8, is a psalm of praise. And specifically, the psalmist is recalling creation. And he is praising God for creation. Uh, we don't know exactly when the date was uh, of this psalm, and we also don't, aren't exactly sure if David or not wrote it, but it's ascribed to him. But the central theme here is God's majesty. And um, uh, we're going to look at three big thoughts here. First of all, God's majesty as revealed through His name. Secondly, God's majesty, the other big thought is God's majesty is the basis for our significance, for our importance. And lastly, God's majesty is reiterated. He finishes with God's majesty, reminding us, don't forget God. And so first of all, I want to look at God's majesty as revealed through His name. That's verses 1 through 2 and also verse 9. But first of all, God's majesty is first and foremost to be praised. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. The name of the Lord is first and foremost to be praised because of who He is. Here the word O Lord is the word Yahweh, which is the Redeemer God. Our Lord, meaning Adonai, is the word that's used of God to be our master, our ruler, our king, our governor. And so the psalmist here is recognizing that the creator of all things is also the ruler over his redeemed people. He is, if you're a Christian, he is your master. He owns you. You are not your own. 
You cannot just live any way you want. I cannot. How majestic is your name in all the earth. This word, majestic, it's a royal attribute. It speaks of God's victories specifically in the Exodus account where Egypt, where the enemies of God are completely and totally vanquished in the Red Sea. Exodus 15.6 says this, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the Creator. There is no other God. And there is no power that can withstand His power. It is awesome. It is awesome indeed. When He says your name, the name of God speaks of the revelation of God. It speaks of who He is. It reveals to us who He is. And we see that in His acts of power. Specifically here in the creation. The, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. It starts off by assuming not arguing for God's existence, but assuming God's existence. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All creation, all creation reveals the power and majesty, the glory of God's name. Romans 1 verse 20 says this, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, speaking of God, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. But if you'll notice that it's only God's people that know God's name. It is only God's people that respond to the revelation of who He is in His handiwork. It is not the one who does not believe that He doesn't exist. It is the person that is redeemed. My question is this. How are we doing? How are we doing in our recognition of God as Creator and thus offering Him praise? How are you doing? I know in my life, I could be doing a lot better. In my life, it's been a struggle lately. In my life, thank God for His grace. Because if it wasn't for His grace, I couldn't be here today. Exodus 3, verses 14-15 through 15 says this, when God is on the mountain revealing to Moses the Ten Commandments, God said to Moses, you know, who, Moses asking him, who, who do I say sent me? Who, you know, you're telling me to go to Moses. Who do I say sent me? 
What am I? I'm an 80-year-old shepherd. I stutter. You know, you got the wrong guy. I got a bad history in Egypt. I ran away. I'm a fugitive. And I'm going to go back? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Notice he's saying, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. In the New Testament, Jesus is uh, um, responding to the Sadducees who believe that God does not raise the dead. And he said, not only are you mistaken, but you do not understand the power of God or the Scriptures. For he says that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So God's name and majesty are here poetically synonymous because the majesty of God's person and creation are revealed to us in the divine name. We see what He does and we see aspects of who He is. The power that He has. Hebrews 1 speaks of the Son who is Jesus Christ. And it says that He, the Son, upholds all things by the Word of His power. By the Word of His power. And this power is seen in what He has done. Now when the text says, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, this brings us back to Psalm 19, 1, which says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands this is something that is a present reality every day non-believers see it they just don't know it god's majesty is revealed through his name his name reveals his majesty and these reveal his person which are manifest in his works but not only that god's majesty not only is to be praised, but God's majesty will not be trumped. You will not outdo God. No one can outdo God. His creation cannot outdo Him. Verse 2 says this, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Now here we have a contrast between infants and nursing babes and the enemy and revengeful. And between the two is who? God. Infants and nursing babes, the enemy and the revengeful. And between the two is God. So here we have on the one hand, infants and nursing babes, which symbolize human weakness, frailty. They are stronger than God's enemies because in some sense they understand God's majesty as revealed through His name. Now this is completely and totally backwards from the world. 
It is the safe-made man, made woman, that we see as strong and vital. It is the person that is the, the, the one who uh, is in charge of their own destiny that we look at and go, wow, I want to be like that. It is the person that says, I will pull up myself by my own bootstraps. And people don't have boots these days that usually do it. It just means I am self-sufficient. I don't need anybody to exist. I could do it myself. That's basically the attitude. And the way God says, the way this scripture reveals is actually you are the weaker one than the one that you think is weaker. So on the one hand, infants and nursing babes are stronger because they recognize God's majesty as revealed through his name. But on the other hand, the enemy and revengeful symbolize human strength. This human strength is a lot of times seen in arrogance and self-assertion. This person does not recognize God's name, the revelation of his name, and therefore cannot submit to it. So the phrase, you have established strength, this phrase is difficult to to translate. Um, The NIV translates it like this, you have ordained praise. So um, uh, infants and nursing babes, uh, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have uh, ordained praise. Another translation says that your glory is chanted. Uh, Yet another one says you celebrate in song. There's praise. There's praise going on. Um, There is a service or there is worship. Um, The bottom line here is that God creates from the mouths of children that confess His name strength. Strength. You know, this morning I came, I got to be honest with you, I did not want to come here today. I've just been dealing with this cloud over my head feeling like, my gosh, this is the last thing I want to do, the last thing I'm prepared to do. So God, you better show up because I have nothing to give in and of myself. That's how I'm feeling. That's how I was feeling. And yet, it doesn't matter how I'm feeling. It doesn't change God. It doesn't change the fact that His grace, like we sang this morning, His grace is enough. His grace is sufficient in whatever weakness and whatever hardship we're experiencing. His grace is enough. His grace is enough. Now when he's talking, you know, when when he's uh, talking about infants, Matthew 21, verses 15 through 16, I think is uh, clearly connected to this idea of God's majestic name. When Jesus is speaking to the, the chief priests and the scribes and he says... But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, Jesus, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. You know what Jesus is saying here, right? He is receiving praise. As God. It's exactly what he's doing. Now, the context here in Matthew, in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, it's the triumphal entry. They're singing Hosanna in the highest. He's coming in on a, on a donkey. Okay? And when they're saying Hosanna to the Son of David, he is fulfilling messianic prophecy. 
He is the messianic king. He is fulfilling Isaiah 62.11. This is a messianic prophecy being fulfilled. Recognizing God. Verses 12-17 through in Matthew 21, He cleanses the temple. He's cleansing the temple. And in this context, He appears, Jesus' interpretation is this, that God's majesty equals His name and is being revealed in the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees. He is, Jesus is in fact saying, the one who the psalmist is praising is here in the flesh. That's what he's saying. That's his interpretation of Psalm 8. God's name is being revealed to you in the Son. So, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 through 29, Paul is speaking of, he's contrasting the wisdom of man and the foolishness of God. We've heard this before, but I want to read this to you again. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. What are these infants? Why are they stronger than apparently the enemies of God and the revengeful? Because they are the called. They, they are the little ones. They are God's people. And I got to tell you, I don't think a lot of times we seem like the mighty ones in the, in the earth, do we? Come on. I mean, look how many of us there are in here. Think about it. Is that the basis for our strength? Our numbers? It's not. The basis for our strength is God. Whether there's two or two million, doesn't matter. That's the basis of our strength. So God silences those who oppose His majesty. His name, His self-revelation, because they don't recognize their desperate need for Him. It's the weak and the feeble that God has chosen among the sea of humanity to reveal His majesty, to reveal His glory 
to reveal his name. Remember Matthew 5? The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world looks at that and says, I don't want to be poor, I want to be rich. Well, in order for you to be rich, according to God, you need to become poor. You need to come and recognize you have nothing God needs. You are desperate for Him. You see how it destroys our pride and our arrogance? Think about this. God is creator. He is self-sufficient. He is self-sustaining. We are creature. We are continuously needy. For us to, to snub our nose at God and say, I don't need you. It is amazing He hasn't wiped us out already. Just the, 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 the arrogance, the insolence, the treason. I mean, we treat human beings better than God. We tend to be more loyal to human beings and to regimes and to pastors and to, to, to presidents, to, to whoever's leading in, in whatever venue, we tend a lot of times to be more faithful and loyal to them than we are to God as creatures. Unless God does something in us, that'll continue. So this view, this view smacks violently against the thought of our age, which makes much of us human beings and very little of God, if any. This is extremely offensive to the personal tastes of our, of our culture. But the psalmist gets it. He gets it. He understands. So His majesty, God's majesty, is revealed through His name, which is to be praised. It can't be trumped but it is His name and the majesty of His name that is the basis for our significance. That's the second thing I want to talk about. I want to reflect on God's handiwork because as I do, it is essential for me to understand my significance. It is essential for you to understand your significance, your importance. I mean, as guys, we look at our, port, you know, our importance is in our brawn, in our brains, in, in um, you know, who we have next to us, in our career. We put so much importance on that. But that's not the basis of our importance. It just isn't. How I produce as a breadwinner, though very important, and it's a mandate we are to as men, of God provide for our families that's not the basis of our significance it's not you know I read um, on uh, online one blog here's what it said um, the meaning of life is pretty straightforward to state your life has whatever meaning you give to it plain and simple what is that saying Man is a measure of all things. What is that saying? There is no objective meaning to life. What is that saying? There is no God, essentially. Essentially. Because from Him 
and through him and to him are all things. That is God. All that which is good, holy, righteous, just, merciful, loving, is grounded in the character of God, not human beings, not cultures. Why? Because we are derivative. We have not always been. We can't, there once was a time when we were not. We are needy, we are finite, we are creatures. We are not creator. That's why. That's why. So verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. As we will see, I want you to note that while the universe is huge and it imparts to us a sense of being absolutely tiny, have you, have you ever gone to the outdoors and looked up into the stars and you see the vastness? You don't deal with the, the, the light pollution of the city and all of a sudden you're just, you're odd. You're odd. And you feel very, very tiny and very, very unimportant. Or you, you may. Okay? The psalmist is recognizing that the vastness of all this, and God, you, you pay attention to me? Because that's what he's dealing with here. God is a God who nevertheless has given us extraordinary strength. He has given us extraordinary things to do within his universe. Now, he's, all the heavenly bodies have their appointed place by whom? By God. He has placed them in orbit and he sustains all of them. There's something that's called the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle, um, um, non Christian um, scientists came up with it, astronomers. And, and essentially, the anthropic principle is this, is that if the sun were just a smidgen further from the, from, the, from the earth, we would freeze up. If it were a smidgen just closer to the earth, we would burn up. There's a fine-tuned, delicate um, placing of the sun so that we can have life here on earth. And the psalmist is saying, God, you did that. You did that. Now when he talks about God's fingers, here he expresses that God is a caring God. Much like someone is a careful sculptor who pays a tremendous amount of attention to detail. God is a God. There is no one who pays more attention to detail than God. No creature pays more attention to detail than God. But here, the psalmist is using this as an example. So in contrast to God, the heavens are tiny. They're pushed. They're prodded into shape by, if you would, divine digits. Now we know God doesn't have fingers, okay? But he's using poetic language to point out the Creator's activity. Verse 4 says, What is man? What is man that you take thought of him and the Son of man that you care 
for him? And this is the big question. This is the big question. It's no laughing matter. Who are we? The psalmist seems to feel the sting of this question, of his insignificance in light of God's majesty as revealed in in creation. Notice, this sting does not come from the psalmist by the psalmist comparing himself to another human being. He's, he's, He's feeling this by comparing himself to the vastness of the universe and then all of a sudden, wow, you care for us. How can this be? How can this be that you, you would care for me? But he does. He does. What is man? The word man is a term for weakness and frailty. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1.4 and uh, verse 11 says this, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. That's verse 4. Verse 11 says, There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Death is real, and it shows us all how weak we are. We're a breath away from dying. And if that weren't enough, we're a generation or two generations from being completely and totally forgotten. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever considered that a hundred years from now, in one sense, we won't matter? Isn't that encouraging for a Sunday morning sermon? Think about it. On the one hand, yeah, if there's no God, if there is no enduring I, that means that I actually survive the death of my body. If there is no enduring I, if, you know, my life, if, I, if I'm the one that is in charge of pronouncing meaning to my life, I could do whatever I want. I can do whatever the heck I want. And it won't matter in the end. So, man is a term for weakness and frailty. Son of man is a term that also speaks of human frailty, but when these two terms are together, they drive home something. Here's what it drives home. Our frailty and limitations as people. In comparison, in comparison, not to each other, but in comparison to the awesome universal creative power that Yahweh has displayed in the heavens. Think about it. The majority of our angst in our lives seems to be we compare ourselves to the wrong standard. Instead of comparing our worth, our significance to God, we compare it to the creature. And the psalmist would say, don't do that. 
Don't do that. You're all twisted up here, okay? So this God takes thought of him. You care for him. And this is probably... um, probably one of the, the toughest ones to live on a daily basis. To trust that God not only is continually caring for you, but that He remembers you. He's acting on your behalf. You know, when, when we're going through pain, going through confusion and we feel abandoned and misunderstood. It's hard for a lot of us often to forget that God is still there. He's still the shepherd. We may be going through the valley of the shadow of death, but we are not to fear any evil because God is with us. And yet sometimes it seems like He's nowhere to be found. Because you're at the same old, you're dealing with the same old problems over and over again in your own life. Dealing with the same old issue. My gosh, do we have to deal with this issue again? I thought this was fixed. It's actually, it's broken. Again, I got to actually deal with this again? I'm exhausted. I don't want to deal with this again. I don't want to deal with this again. Whatever your this is. Matthew 5.45 says this, of God, although, although we are rebels, He doesn't wipe us out. He doesn't wipe us out. God is a God who extends mercy to His creatures. And He says, for He causes, God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He's not just kind to believers. He's kind to non-believers. He is. Because that's who He is. So the psalmist's reflection brings him to this point, that our significance, okay, comes from being image bearers who rule God's creation. Verse 5. Yet... You've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. When we are talking about God making us in his image, it means that we are not a mere accident. We are not a, 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 a bunch of atoms put together through, by chance and time. Uh, no, we are uniquely designed by the one who is the architect of the heavens and the earth. And if that is the case, then this cancels out atheism, which holds that God does not exist. If that is the case, this cancels out Darwinian evolution, which holds that we are here by chance, not by design. If this is true, then this cancels out pantheism, which makes no distinction between the world and the Creator. In this view, God is all, and all is God. There are no distinctions. But the psalmist doesn't make this claim. 
The psalmist clearly has the creation account in mind. You have made him a little lower than God. This image bearer, a little lower than God. The word is Elohim that we get our word for God. And it's been translated in some texts as heavenly beings or angels, but I think that the NASB gets it right here. Because on the one hand, while we as human beings are finite, that is, we are limited, um, and God is not limited, He is infinite, He has always been, He is self-existent. It appears that in this context, that a little lower speaks of mankind being image bearers that God has given the role to rule His creation. God is the king, is he not? He is. He is the sovereign. He owns everything. His creatures, those specifically made in his image, have been given the mandate to rule the created order. You know, one of the things I try to make my kids do to teach them about ruling is... Um, you know, think of your room as your universe. Think of your room as the laboratory for how well you will rule. And when your room is in chaos and things are everywhere, okay, it doesn't point to order, it points to disorder. God is a God of order. Everything has its place. You know, so kids, if you think your parents, if they're like me, that, you know, they've gone completely Looney Tunes, you know, thinking, my gosh, everything's got a place, everything's got an order. They didn't come up with that. That's not a, a human idea. That is a God reality being expressed through a parent or a boss, a teacher. Okay? So, while humans are not beasts, while we are not beasts, we're also not divine. And there's a New Testament reason why I think it's not angels that Paul is talking about. When, um, or it's, it's not angels that the psalmist, the, the translation for Psalm 8, that it's not talking about angels, but it is talking, it, it's not talking about um, angels. It's talking about us being a li- made a little lower than God is because this, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul is reprimanding the Corinthians because they could not judge among themselves disputes. And they're taking before unbelieving judges their disputes. And Paul is saying, what is the matter with you? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? We're going to judge angels? Do you know that angels, the Bible teaches that they are ministering spirits? They serve us who are believers? They they serve us. That's humbling. God has not made angels in His image. 
God only made human beings in His image. And so to say and to hold that you make significance, whatever it is you say it is, is to belittle being an image bearer. When man becomes the measure of what reality is, we belittle our design. Things start going awry. The machinery, sorry for using that word, but the machinery starts breaking down. And we start doing all kinds of things that go against how God has designed us to rule. Instead of helping our co-workers flourish, we squash them. Instead of encouraging a teammate not to lose heart, we get on their case and berate them because they didn't perform. I used to do that. Things go sideways. But we're a little lower than God. And yet we're so frail. But that's what the text says. So to be crowned with glory and majesty is to rule over God's handiwork. This mandate, this command, was not done away after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It was not done away. You made Him, you crowned Him, it's still a present reality. Even though God made us and He crowned us, we are still to be ruling today. It continues. We are to be fruitful and multiply. That has not been done away with after the fall. So, you make Him to rule, verse 6, 7, and 8. Here we go. You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Note the extent of the ruling. You're to rule domestic animals, wild animals, birds of the air, fish of the sea, and anything that passes in it. I don't think this way. Do you? My gosh, I, I, I go in the ocean. Last thing I want to do is try to, you know, deal with a shark. <laughs> I want to get the heck out. You know, shark's angry because of the fall. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's angry. He's angry. You know, when, when, when the line, you, go, you know, you, you, go, you go to a, uh, um, a, a zoo, you want to stay away from the lion. You want, you want to keep the barrier. Why? Because he'll rip your throat out. <laughs> right? Think about it. Because he's angry. Or she's angry. Now, why is that? The fall. But yet, somehow, human beings have been able to tame animals. They know how to deal with them. Not all of us. Okay? But the mandate is to all of us. I don't get that, man. It, it, it kind of puzzles me. But what's the point? The point is we've been given the mandate to rule as image bearers. As image bearers. It's a stewardship that sin has tainted definitely. What is the proverb says that a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, 
You don't want to treat your animals with disdain and, and cruelty. It's not what God has ordained. It's not what God wants. They're to be treated with respect and dignity and care. They're His creatures too, and He loves them. And we as vice-regents, under-rulers, we are to care for creatures. Not exploit them. Not slaughter them for, for, for greed. So whatever passes through the seas, this might be an all-embracing way of saying any kind of marine life. <laughs> you go, wow. Any kind of marine life. We've got a huge ocean out there. It's pretty mind-boggling. Our position was granted before the fall. As Genesis 1.28, God says that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But it was not something that was revoked after the fall. Consider Genesis 9, verses 1 through 3, where God speaks to Noah after the flood waters subsided and he's out and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you I will give I give all to you as I gave the green plant as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Wow, it's not just the plants now that we can eat. We can eat any kind of animal. We were then and are to now rule the creation. Not be controlled by it. We're to, in other words, we are to honor God in how we rule. We are to rule righteously as redeemed people. In verse 9, lastly, God's majesty, he reiterates God's majesty. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist starts with the majesty of God. The psalmist ends with the majesty of God, which has been revealed in creation and specifically in making image bearers to rule. So, His majesty is revealed through His name. His majesty is the basis for our significance, not us. And His majesty is to continually be reiterated. That is, you can never praise Him enough. You can never think about this enough. Do not tire. Do not tire of it. So, the way we rule to the glory of God is directly related to our understanding as sinful, finite creatures that we're utterly dependent on Him. That's the first thing. Second thing, those who refuse to be dependent on God as little children cannot rule to His glory, and therefore they are His enemies and will one day be completely silenced. They will not be remembered. Is this you? Is this me? 
our groping for meaning in this life and the resulting depression that comes with it in this journey, I think is directly linked to how well or poorly we are ruling. Where are we? Where are you? How are you ruling in your life? What are you meditating on? Whatever we do in word or deed, we are to glorify God. That is, show forth His name, what He is like in how we live. How? And here's how. By trusting as little children that our Father will care for us. As we have looked at this morning, How are we doing here? Are we trusting that the Father really does care? Or are we dealing with the sin of unbelief? And lastly, we are going to rule and reign with Christ forever. Those that are believers are going to reign and rule with Him forever. He has said that the Father's pleasure is to give us the kingdom the Father's pleasure to give us the kingdom. Here we go again, ruling. And our ruling well is part of God's desire for us. It's interwoven in our prayers where we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I ask that you use the word to touch our lives where we need it this morning. And Lord, I pray that those of us in here that struggle with recognizing your majesty, recognizing that you are creator, oh, change that in us this morning. Those of us, God, that feel insignificant, not because we're meditating on you and on your works, but we're comparing ourselves among ourselves. Oh, Lord, change that. Change that in us. And Lord, may your praise ever be on our tongues. May it ever be that we are continuously offering up sacrifices of praise to you, Lord. That when we do not want to praise you and we do not want to acknowledge you, that we say to our soul, hope in God, for I will yet praise you. Because you are our God, you are our Redeemer. And so Lord, do what you alone can do. Change hard hearts stony hearts into hearts of flesh. Change, God, wavering, wavering to steadfast assurance that you are faithful and good, that what you say you will complete, that we're not alone, that your works, Lord, truly are awesome, and you will reign forever. And we will forever sing 
the praises of the Lamb, of He who sits on the throne. We praise you for them in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer.